Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and of course, everyone in between. Uh, this is Clifton Duncan. This is my podcast. We do not need another name when it is this freaking good. Uh, today, my guest is a fantastic musician named James Zimmerman, who has a fantastic story to tell. Now, one of the things that's been going on uh, with my podcast is I've been learning, uh, and as it becomes more and more of a home for I suppose I would say disenchanted, uh, disillusioned, um, maybe more free thinking, more heterodox um, artists uh, who the first sort of season, if you will, is converging around diagnosing what some of the issues are um, in various uh, arts and uh, maybe arts and entertainment industries. And so uh, a publication called it was the free beacon wasn't it james that um that Correct. that uh, broke the story about your i guess we'll call it a cancellation uh, from the um from the nashville symphony orchestra is that also correct um That's right. and so we're going to get into that a little bit today but also um in the short time that we have and this is not james's fault this is my own um but um we're going to talk about that story and it also reminded me of another story from the theater world uh, which you which you have some knowledge of but then we're going to get into um, how woke ideology and I hate that phrase honestly because I feel like it's becoming kind of played out but these people also unironically refer to themselves as woke so I guess we'll just go uh, with their terminology and do as the Romans do so to speak but hopefully we'll get into how this sort of ideology is actually harming the very artists that they say that they claim to want to uh, uphold and champion. But before we get into that, uh, tell people about yourself and who you are and what your background is and why it is that you have the authority to speak on this particular topic, Mr. Zimmerman. Sure. Well, thank you, Clifton, for having me on. Um, Well, I'm 39 years old. I've lived here in Nashville, Tennessee, since 2008. I came here to become the principal clarinetist of the Nashville Symphony, a job I auditioned for and won three months before that in June 2008 against a pool of over 300 applicants. Um, Prior to that, I was a child actor. I was a singer on jingles that everyone probably listening to this podcast who is of the proper age has heard uh, for Kodak and Cool Whip and M&M's. Squeeze it drinks, if you remember those. Um, But my love of acting waned as I became increasingly fascinated by the musicians underneath the stages I was performing on. And growing up in a musical family, a five generational musical family from Philadelphia, the birthplace of the American orchestral music tradition, uh, I pursued a career path, not out of passion so much as practicality. I wanted to have a family. I did not want to travel. I did not want to struggle any more than necessary. And being in an orchestra appeared to be the way. You could go to college to study this. Hmm. You could um, have stability. You could have a corporate style life for a musical corporation and play some pretty good music along the way of Beethoven and Brahms, but also salsa music. You got hip hop artists coming in there, spoken word artists playing along with movies. It was a diverse and multiplicitous career I enjoyed for 12 years until I was fired by the symphony in 2020 for allegedly um, being a stalker, white supremacist, um, terrible coworker. There's a lot of details in between that first part and the second part, but happy to go into them um, at your direction. 
Yeah. So <clears throat> this, so the, 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 the gist of what you just said is that uh, you have lived a very focused and specific um I would say that there's passion behind what 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 you're doing definitely and I mean there's a passion for a a more stable life certainly more than one that I've enjoyed as as an actor I think you you were the smart one who got out um and uh, decided to go for more stability but um what what's really fascinating about your your story and um because there was a there was a musician who was who was uh, who I'm, I'm assuming he still is black, um, uh, assuming he's still uh, with us right now. Who, um, as I understand it from the details uh, of the story, he uh, he was able to win a blind audition with the with the symphony orchestra in Nashville, and he played and he. And it was a blind audition that he, he ended up winning. And then he wasn't able, the, the, the initial consensus was that, no, we're, we're not really interested in taking this person on. But you were someone who advocated for him uh, to have a trial period with the, with the orchestra. Is that correct? Correct. So may I take you down the blind audition rabbit hole for a moment? Because yeah, I think sure, it's relevant sure. to our conversation. Because because I've, I've read, I've read and, and you know way more about this than me, but I do remember after some of the, you know, because I, I, I'm, I'm maybe we'll get to this as well, but it seemed like a lot a lot really changed after in the wake of George Floyd's death. And a lot of these industries began to sort of go super hardcore into increasing their diversity. I don't know if that really plays into what you're, you're, you, you went through, but uh, maybe we'll get into that, but yes, please, you know, cause I remember reading stories that the, the whole point of this is I remember reading stories about uh, the elimination of blind auditions. I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, what better metric could there be uh, for merit-based hiring? But then that, that's what's at the core of, of this story, I think, is, is you know, an aversion to merit-based hiring. But, but uh, yes, what's, what's the rabbit hole of blind auditions? So once upon a time, I think 100 years ago, if you were an aspiring musician who wanted to be in an orchestra, your ticket to that golden opportunity was only connections. You needed money. You needed training. And you needed a venue to prove your worth to the conductors leading the symphonies that you wanted to work for. So the musicians union somewhere along the way decides, you know, everybody should have a chance at these things. We've got a lot more people that want to do this for a living than we do opportunities. So we need to come up with a meritocratic system for selecting the most qualified players. And um, the blind audition was born about 50 years ago. And over the subsequent um, decades, we saw some radical changes in the complexion of people coming to orchestras. Namely, orchestras went from being almost all male to half male and half female um, in a relatively short amount of time. However, um, Black Americans did not see the same type of improvement. Their numbers doubled, but only from about 1.5% to 3%. Meaning every orchestra went from having about zero or one black players to having maybe a few. So we look at this meritocratic system and we say, why does this system provide the outcomes we're looking for, for women and not for black Americans? So the answer, as we all might know, is systemic racism. There is something wrong with the process because 
it doesn't produce equal outcomes. And so therefore, as Kendi would have us believe, the process itself is racist. This is the proof of the racism contained in the process. We're not sure where it is. We're not sure how to solve it, but we know that it's there. And we know that racism is in play for these blind auditions. Must be. So at the time of my audition, we were holding a blind preliminary round, a blind semifinal round. And then when you got it narrowed down to the final few, we would take down the screens and look at the resumes. Now this player who was auditioning for the Nashville Symphony and won the audition for Principal Oboe in 2019 is named Titus Underwood. He's a journeyman from Juilliard and an immensely talented Mm. young man. Yep, he's from (laughs) Pensacola, Florida, which we call down here the Redneck Riviera. I've been there many times. (laughs) And I'll tell you that the Black folk from Pensacola are not like the Black folk in New Jersey. They are not generally... Like the man I studied with from age 15 to 17, a man named Brian Brown, the color guard instructor at the local middle school, who was my teacher for three years. He would come to my house. He would give me lessons. Um, Wait a minute. Drive so me you, from school. So as a, as a racist, you allowed a black man into your own home to give you tutelage. Is that what you're saying? Well, he was the best teacher in town. Why wouldn't I? Well, it's well, I, I'm he just was teaching figure, all the best players. So I'm, I'm, I'm just, why I'm wouldn't just you study with to, the person who was the best? I, I'm just trying to square this circle. If, if you're such this, uh, this uh, foaming at the mouth uh, white supremacist, why you would, you would lower yourself to, uh, to uh, allow yourself to be guided by a, a performer that wasn't your own skin tone? Well, you see, it wasn't until later that I realized that I only invited him to my home to feel more comforted by the white supremacy ah, the being magical taught to me by my parents. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. And in the in the process, I guess I learned how to play too, because I went mm. to, to school at the University of Southern California in pursuit of excellence. And I traveled around uh, ending up my last destination was the University of Minnesota, which is not a great music school, but did employ the principal clarinetist of the Minnesota Orchestra, the Japanese Bert Hara, whom I went there to study with. So my mm. main teachers throughout my life were not white men. They were a black man from the local middle school who also taught color guard, a Japanese immigrant. Well, he was born in this country, but his parents immigrated to Los Angeles. And finally, my main teacher of all, who with whom I studied for four years in college, came here from Israel to study mm. and eventually took over the program at the University of Southern, Southern California and turned it into the greatest teaching dynasty of his generation. His name is Yehuda Gilad. So eventually after all that, I came to the Nashville Symphony and won this audition. And in the final round, the screen came down. They saw me. I did not have hair like this. I did not have a beard. I was a clean cut 26 year old white kid who dominated in the audition. It was one of those days, man, the best playing day I've ever had in my life. You've talked publicly about the luck involved in these things. I got lucky. Now I had practice eight hours a day for three weeks before this thing. And I had spent a decade amassing the knowledge that would allow me to be competitive, but without luck, you just cannot win. So back to the blind audition discussion. In about 2017, we started to hear some new ideas circulating through the Nashville Symphony and the orchestra world in general about how these orchestras had failed Specifically, us in the Nashville Symphony had failed to overcome the systemic racism 
that was permeating our entire artistic enterprise. And we needed to do something. And this was much different from the previous, like there was a speech given by a guy named Jonathan Marks. His last name actually is Marks. And for the first time, we are hearing at the inaugural concert of a season about this. We're not playing Ode to Joy by Beethoven anymore. We're not doing the all Gershwin Gala, which was my first concert where I could play Rhapsody in Blue, the most iconic clarinet solo ever written to a sold out house that would clap afterwards. No, now we must be here to absorb the pain of white supremacy promulgated by our orchestra. And I'm sitting on stage next to Titus, who had been hired on an interim basis at first because we had a temporary job opening. And he was the most qualified guy out there. He'd been to 15 final rounds of auditions. Mm. How on earth could anyone get that far 15 times and not dock the boat in the harbor? I just could not believe it. But the answer is what you know. It's when that screen comes down. And when you see Titus on his 6'2 black frame, you know that you can't hire this man because he's black. And black people, as we all know in the symphony world, cannot succeed in our white supremacist venture. So, so hold on. So you, are you saying, if I'm understanding correctly, that he made it down to the final round 15 times, but didn't get hired? Is that, is that what you said? That's exactly what I said. Okay. Okay. So you would think that when he said, you know, there's a lot of racism in the finals, when they see me, like the, the implicit bias, which from which I've been shielded by a screen in the first two rounds, is now on display. This is why I'm not getting hired. And you know what I said in 2017? I was like, damn. That sounds true to me. Like we have to do something. We don't have screens in the finals here. Like we should put them up. We should, that is the direction that the industry was going for auditions to blind audition the whole way through. So I got myself elected to the union's negotiating committee in preparation to collectively bargain a new agreement, something that happens every four years. It takes hundreds of man hours and women hours to make this happen. You sit down at the table for all those hours saying, here's what we want. We, we want you to pay us more. We want you to give us more days off, which management always says, no, we can't because we have no money. You know, these aren't thriving institutions. These are nonprofits trying mm-hmm. to keep the lights on every year, mm-hmm. but we always manage to do it. And so when we ask, this won't cost you anything. You know, we can put the screens up. It'll eliminate bias. It will stop the monsters at the door who are saying we're a bunch of racists, even though that call is coming from inside the building with Jonathan Marks, whose name is actually Marks. Um, We need to do something to stop this rhetoric. And so it's a win-win for everybody. And management was right on our same team with that one. The only person who did not want to put up the screen in the finals was the maestro, Giancarlo Guerrero. He once said to me over dinner, he was like, I need to use all five of my senses to ascertain whether this person is the real deal or not. And I said, okay, I'm not sure you need all five. Maybe you just need sight and sound. I don't think we need to touch the person, but I get what you're saying. Like you want to have all the data available to you when deciding who to hire likely for three decades. These are the type of jobs you die in. These are like academia jobs. If you get that lucky and you hit that lottery and you can survive the tenure process, which can take a couple years, then you know, you're, you're hiring this person for life. So you can't mm-hmm. screw this up. So he didn't want to put the screens up in the finals, but we convinced him, management convinced him. And there we are. And going back to the speech of Jonathan Marks on stage, I'm sitting next to Titus, 
the 15-time finalist from other orchestras, who is now in my orchestra, not from an audition, but from a temporary hire. He had all the qualifications. He had a magnetic personality. He was handsome. He was interesting. He'd grown up doing slam poetry. He was the son of a preacher. You know, he was, the fact that a man like this was playing the oboe was just weird. I mean, he had a voice like you or James Earl Jones, but, a, but an oboe voice like, like Smokey Robinson or mm -hmm. D'Angelo, you know, that high register. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking in that baritone and then your, your oboe voice is like this little, this little thing shining in our beautiful concert hall. It was kind of weird, like maybe for a day. And then you get over and it's like, man, let's get to work. So the speech is going on. I'm sitting next to the only black man on stage as Marx is giving his speech about white supremacy. And I turned to Titus and I was like, man, I'm sure we're glad we have you now. Uh -oh. Which was either, it was, a, it was a trial balloon, which I spontaneously floated over the wind section to see, would he laugh or would he file this away somewhere? You know? And I think I know what the what option he chose, but please. Continue. Well, it was very obvious right away that it was filed away. And I said, OK, these are not the kind of jokes you can make. Like I was thinking back to when I was 19 after my freshman year of college, when I had no gigs, no connections. Um, and I hadn't gotten into any of the prestigious summer music festivals I'd auditioned for. So I was collecting shopping carts at an old Navy all summer, getting there at five in the morning putting in my eight hours and going home and practicing all day. That's where I was when I was 19. And my boss was a black guy named Roderick. And he immediately poached me to, to stack shelves in the stock room with him. He's like, y'all don't need any, you don't, y'all don't need to be working with customers. You need to be back here. You're the strongest guy in here other than me. And while we stack boxes, me and Roderick, we just like talk trash all day. He called me college boy. And he said, you don't want to end up like me with no education stacking boxes when you're in your thirties, you're at college you better make something of that. That little clarinet thing you're doing, you know, do this now, practice hard so you don't have to do this when you're my age. And like, it was just, he was dropping knowledge as we stacked jeans. Mm -hmm. So to call me a white supremacist is to say that I've learned nothing from my black teacher, nothing from Roderick at Old Navy, nothing from Deborah Mitchell, the founder of the New Jersey Tap Ensemble in which I professionally danced all through high school. Forgot to mention that earlier. I was an actor, a dancer, a player, an artist of many sorts. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that all of my role models were black growing up. Not that I care, but it just was the case. So, you know, I'm used to, you know, poking black guys in the ribs at work. And I figured, man, maybe me and Titus um, can be can have that kind of relationships that I'm comfortable with. But he, he was not. So just curtailed the jokes from then on. And he was good. Titus was good, but he was rough. He was rough. He was unrefined. But every once in a while, he would, he would sing something like a gospel singer. And it's like, man, you know what? I just can't make that vibration. Like, I've never heard an oboist make that vibration. It reminded me of my mom when we would listen to Black singers growing up. She's like, man, you know, James, white people's vocal cords just cannot do this. Which I accepted. It's like, okay, there are things that they can do that we can't. Let's celebrate them and admire them and not try to impersonate them, but let's recognize that there is something different about black people than us as a group, white people, which is a group that nobody, no white person ever opts into. I mean, but now, you know, we have this, these speeches in the orchestra about whiteness, about oppression. 
So skipping over many relevant details, two years later, after two years of steady improvement and coaching from me and his fellow principals, Titus had to take this audition to win the job permanently to get on tenure track. And I thought he was going to win. He played for me a few weeks before and I thought he was going to get it. (laughs) I told him like he played for me for half an hour, pristine, had a notepad in front of me. I'm, I, I couldn't even think of anything to write. I just sat and listened. And I put the, put the pad down. And I said, Titus, how is it possible if you can play like that, that you don't have a job by now? And he said, you know, it's because when I come out from behind that screen, I always hear people gasp. And I said to myself, he really believes what he's saying. You know, he really believes it is racism. He is immune to responsibility. He can't ever look at his, his flaws and say, you know, I could do better there. It was always, if only people could include these flaws because they're my superpower, they're my blackness. So suddenly his flaws and his imperfections were, became part of this thing, this amorphous thing known as his blackness, which we all needed to accept when really the rest of us are like, he's just out of tune. It's just, his rhythm is rough. So is this an issue that would have been easily fixed with just a little more, a little more time dedicated to focusing on those? I mean, because it sounds to me like what you're saying is it's basically technical uh, issues that were holding him back. Right. So that was the question we needed to ask. And I wanted to ask this, but go ahead. Actually, I don't want to no, well, well, I was going to conversation. Go ahead. Well, because I was going to say th- there, there's a weird. It, it's unfortunate. And, and um, you know, I said at the top that um, part of what we could get into was just how how this sort of ideology harms um, uh, the people that it's supposed to empower. And, you know, I've been in the same sort of position. I mean, I've been supported every step of the way in terms of my own career, uh, only to learn in 2020 that the industry has always been racist, by the way. But um, if I'm being honest with myself, I do know that, you know, I haven't applied myself um, many times as much as I could have. And the thing is, when I did apply myself, um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't start becoming more prominent in New York City um, until I began working diligently on my singing. I didn't break in. I didn't start getting more TV work until I began working diligently on my on camera technique. And I think what holds people back is this idea, is this assumption, because really what it is, is it's a safety net to say it's not my fault that I didn't succeed in the way that I wanted to. Um, it's not my fault that my career hasn't turned, hasn't panned out the way that I wanted to. It's just all those white people and the, and this entire system that is keeping me from, uh, from advancing. And what that does is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, unless you're able to somehow, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Suck the venom out of your body, um, of this ideology and say, you know what? Maybe it's not something because I remember I had a teacher in, in grad school. I went to a fancy conservatory and, you know, I had a very frank discussion with one of my teachers He's a great, great dude. And he was like, you know what? I've been teaching here for 22 years at the time. So probably over three decades now. But he said every black male individual that comes in here has this wall that's up, has this guard that's up. 
And as an actor, and I'm presuming this also applies to other arts, you can't have these sorts of barriers, these internal barriers up within yourself, because that is going to block off whatever individual creative persona, whatever, whatever your individual genius is, amplified by training, discipline, craft, technique, um, is going to get stifled. And, you know, it's, it's not until you are able to break free from i'm going to use these slavery references now from break free from these shackles of this this sort of i'm just going to call it a left-wing sort of orthodoxy that says that people are out to get you and if you don't succeed it's because of them not because of you and that can be a very i think for maybe for black artists that can sometimes be a very painful kind of gut check to say well wait a minute um, why, why am I not getting to the places that I want to get to? And my, my overall point, um, is to say that this is part of the problem that I'm diagnosing right now is that you have these arts industries and, and they're full of really interesting people who are open, who are caring, and they want the best. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of egotism involved, obviously, as well. But generally speaking, I think people, you know, want to see, you know, everyone kind of succeed. And, you know, if everyone's doing well, then we're all doing well. And, and, um, but it can be tough sometimes to say, wait a minute, because I had the same thing too. I said, you know, I, I feel like sometimes I'm not, I'm not connecting with, with white audiences. Like what is going on? Is it something that is just culturally different? Can they not see my own humanity? Can I, can they not see it's arrogance too? Can I not, can they not see the greatness that's in front of them right now, as opposed to me going back and saying, no, actually, I can just be more specific in my approach to this role. I can be more specific in, you know, how I'm shading this character. I can be more dynamic. I can just be, I can just be better. I can always be better. And May um, I interject there. Yeah. You spoke about connection and this topic about which you've spoke many times about audience connection and about anti-racism's, um, whittling away at any connection there was between audiences of color and white performers or vice versa. There's also a lack of connection between black performers and the people around them that comes from this wall you just spoke of. You know what? Now, and I'm, I'm going to cut in again because I've experienced this myself. And it, it's it, the, the corrosive nature, because what it does is that it, it you can't you can't form an ensemble you can't form any kind of cohesive unit with people um, if you have these these walls up because you're coming from a place of default distrust you're coming from yes. a place of these people are out to get me they're out to harm me in some way they don't understand me I went through many many years of a lot of grief a lot of loneliness <laughs> and really and really compromised work um, because I had this attitude of these people over here don't understand me. And sometimes there are, there are going to be cultural and class differences and those can sort of work themselves out. But if the, if the goal is to create the best work possible, then none of it should matter. But yeah. But, but that's not the goal. That's no longer the goal. Hmm. The goal is to get representation. That's right. It's Which not in that and of good itself isn't, it's not that getting great art isn't the goal. It's just no longer the primary goal. 
it's a secondary well, goal. It's like, let's get the representation and see what kind of art we can make out well, of it. Well, representation in and of itself is a racist concept to me, because what it says is that if there's one of you, then it's enough because one of you is the same as all of you. And I'm sorry, right. but nobody, it, it, it's an insult to everybody. Like, you know, if, if I'm on stage, does that mean that Denzel Washington is represented or James Earl Jones is represented? If they're on screen or on camera, do they represent me? No. We're, we're completely different performers with different attributes, different temperaments, different artistic sort of leanings. We can't, that, that, that's the greatness of what we do is that as, as artists is that, you know, each, like what, whatever we bring to the table individually, our own intuition, our own imagination, our own creative impulses and instincts, again, amplified by years and hour, hours and years of training and hard work and technique and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't just, we're not, it, it's the concept of like, we are replaceable underneath it is that, you know, when, when, once you've seen one of us, that means you're looking at all of us. It's a racist concept. It's an awful concept. It's just absolutely prejudicial and cynical and evil. If I could just call a spade a spade, it's, and it's been destructive to everything that we have worked for as artists for centuries. That's More destructive clipped, than anything way. I've seen. <laughs> that's good. That's going to get clipped by the way. You, you, you use the term spade. <laughs> well, is that racist? I guess you have the authority to tell me. I've made these mistakes before. Let me tell you something. Can I tell a little story about what happened between me and Titus? Go for it. Because we were friends. Let me back up and tell you what happened to him at his audition, since this has already been reported by Aaron Sabarium in the Free Beacon. So it's 2019. We're in the final round. I've been sitting there for two days listening to almost 100 oboists play the same five minutes of music. We've narrowed this thing down to three finalists. And they were all kind of weak. We didn't have a dark horse back there that we were like, yeah, that guy, that woman, that's who we want. I don't even know if it's a man or a woman. I don't know if they're 15 or 45. doesn't matter. I love this. We had three players who had managed not to get eliminated at that point of the audition, which, you know, you can play these things safe. Are you into basketball at all by any chance? Uh, Why are you asking me that, James? Because Uh, very, very very casually, you got to think of this thing like the NCAA tournament where you survive and advance. You know, you don't think about what you're going to do when you get to the finals. You think about your next game. You know, just survive. You don't have to win big. Winning by one is the same as winning by 100. Just survive and advance. So these players have survived and advanced to the final three. Mm-hmm. We listen to them all. Underwhelming. Very underwhelming. But there's mm-hmm. one player that we kind of liked a little more than the others. So we sent two of them home. We got one left. So the audition is essentially over. Why would we bring one player out? Again, once we've already whittled it down to one, it's because we had options here. Here's what you can do in this situation. You can hire the person and put them on tenure track for a couple of years. You can declare the audition over with no winner, which is always a bad look for the orchestra and very discouraging and expensive. These things cost thousands of dollars to undertake. Or you can give a trial week where you say, okay, you know what? I got one or two people left. They're not having the best day, but I bet you if they come and do the job for a couple of weeks, they'll knock our socks off. This audition situation is not the real thing. There's no audience. There's no other cast members on stage. Let's see if they can hang. So that's what we were going to do with this one last player. We were like, you know, let's bring him for a trial. And somebody says, well, I don't know. The trial week we're looking at is like three weeks from now. I hope this player's free to show up on such short notice and play. And at that moment, the union steward, 
a woman whose job it is to make sure that all the procedure is followed. She's not a voting member. She's just there to make sure that the rules are being followed. She appears from behind the screen and says, don't worry about schedule conflicts. It's Titus. Hoping everyone will be excited. And I said, I was, I was amazed because there it was. I had predicted this earlier, like three weeks before. I was like, he won. He did it. He got the trial. But I was also horrified because the process had been compromised. He was no longer anonymous and we are still deliberating. And this air hung in the room like, oh my gosh, really? We've just listened to a hundred players. And the one left standing is a guy that we already know is kind of on the bubble. So there, uh, an evil conversation breaks up. Thinking, well, I've got reservations. Like, why do we need to try him for two more weeks when we'd already played with him for 75 weeks? Like, we know the results of this experiment. Why undertake it? So his best friend in the orchestra allegedly says, you know what? Titus has an audition in five weeks for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. If we're just going to string him along as a formality and bring him in to do this trial, that's cruel. We should just cut him loose now and let him move on. And that argument was the one that won the day. Everyone said, yeah, that is cruel. He's not going to deliver in the trial. We already know this. And I'm sitting there, the one guy in the room is like, how dare you suggest this? Like, not only is that incredibly cruel and you're asking me to lie, you don't know what he's going to do. Imagine all the confidence imbued in this man by winning this audition against a hundred other players. You might feel like you're the shit after something like that. I sure did when I won. I walked out of there with my chest puffed out. Yeah, motherfuckers, that's who won this audition, me. That's what Titus would have been feeling. And I was like, I can't believe we're even discussing letting him go and lying. How dare you? But I lost. No one got my back. No one got Titus's back. I thought I was going to vomit. I really did. I, th- I was sickened by these people who I thought were my, you know, morally unimpeachable co-workers signing up for this because the boss whose decision it really is and who would have been the one on the hook legally for a situation like this had ordered them the secret never leaves this room. And in that moment when he said that, actually when he said, think of this as a blessing in disguise, I knew I didn't belong in that orchestra anymore. It's like, if this is what our boss, our artistic head of the situation is saying, that we're going to cut the one black man and lie about it, then you will get away with this over my dead career. And I went home went to sleep, woke up at four o'clock the next morning and spent two and a half hours drafting an email to this committee saying, we, after today's rehearsal, will ambush Giancarlo Guerrero in his office and demand that he give the trial week that Titus rightfully earned. Now, not everybody wanted to do this, but no one could deny the moral value of what I was saying. No one, even the people who wanted to kick Titus to the curb, could not disagree with me that it was wrong. And so um, I went in there, Giancarlo relented, The next day, he said to Titus something behind closed doors, which I do not know, but it couldn't have been comfortable saying, hey, just kidding. When we cut you the other night, we found out it was you. Ha ha ha. We're going to give you those trial weeks after all. For all the talk of the empathy we're supposed to have for our black brethren, imagine the feeling inside of a man who thinks the world is out to get him upon hearing that type of statement from your future boss. Imagine the anger, the frustration, and the fulfillment of a self-fulfilling prophecy that, yes, the world is, in fact, out to get him because he's Black. Because to him, 
once his cover was blown and we found out he was black. That is why we did not want him. It wasn't because of his performance. It wasn't because of his worth as an individual black man, as a man who happened to be black. It was because of blackness in general and our discomfort and our right to comfort being threatened by his presence. That's what Titus must have been feeling. I knew him. I had talked to him at length about all of these issues. I had been galvanized by him to go into the negotiation, get myself elected and demand screens and finals. It was because of him. It was for him in his service and everyone that supposedly looks like him. And the process wasn't being followed and nobody stuck up for it. It was appalling. The worst thing I've ever seen in my career, bar none. So then, so now I'm, I'm confused then because it seems to me from everything that you, that, that you are saying that you are very much an advocate for this person. So then what, what changed? What, what, what shifted? Well, a couple things. I'm struggling to know where to go from here because there is another backstory, but there is also what happened during those trial weeks. You want to choose your own adventure here? I know we have limited time. Um, well, what's, let's go in chronological order. Um, how about, okay. so I guess the trial weeks would be, would be the first, um, the first issue of that story or, or, or the backstory you were, you were referring to. I'm going to rewind okay. a back to a backstory. You talked about connection Clifton about how it's seemingly becoming harder every day to connect with a person without your same skin color when it didn't used to be before it had never been hard for me at any point in life. And now I was being told that's because I'm an oppressor which I did not believe at first, but I really sat with the idea for a couple of years, actually, because the rhetoric was, is very intoxicating at first. It does make you think that maybe there are things going on underneath the surface that I can't identify. And I would like a trusted friend to help me know if certain behaviors or attitudes that I have are in fact uncomfortable to a large population of people. I would like to know that and I would adjust accordingly. But Titus and I had a, a connection over something that was very Interesting. You see, seven years into my career, um, when I, in the National Symphony, this is 2015, I was married. I had two children, age five and two, both daughters. And then one night I was on stage and my supervisor called me off to tell me after the overture that my wife was in an ambulance on the way to the emergency room. My children were with a trusted friend at my home and what would I like to do? I said, I'm out of here. I sprinted out of the building in my tux, jumped in my car and met her at the triage center, hopped in another, another ambulance, went over to Centennial Hospital where she was given open heart surgery after the concert that night. And it seemed like she was going to make it, but she didn't. She died a couple of days later oh my God. at the age of 38. I'm so sorry, bro. Le- Thank you. Leaving me broken and a single parent and destroyed frankly. But after a few months of travel and soul searching on full paid leave, thanks to the wonderful HR department that existed then, Mm. I, I came back. And in my first concert, I played a performance of Beethoven nine that was dedicated to my late wife's honor. We played four concerts. And at the last one on the Sunday matinee in front of a sold out house after the Adagio movement, right before Ode to Joy was to commence I sobbed on stage in the silence for about three minutes, the three longest minutes of my performing career, as I was embraced by the two elderly white women next to me who cried along. Mm. Giancarlo, 
stood on the podium, baton between his hands. A daughter's, my daughter's first grade classmate was in the audience, I later, I later learned, asking her mother, what is wrong with that man on stage? Why is he crying? But I gave the signal to John Carlo that Ode to Joy was okay to start. And for the next half an hour, everyone around me infectiously began to weep hmm. in memory of my first wife. Now, fast forward. I'm remarried. I have another daughter. I'm happy, happier than ever before. I've been married almost six years now. My older two children have been legally adopted by their mother and we are living happily ever after. Wonderful. But something interesting happened to Titus a few years later that was eerily similar. We were preparing for a very unusual performance of a concerto for seven winds in timpani by the Swiss composer, Frank Martin, kind of an obscure composer, obscure piece, but this was going to mean seven principles, you know, flute, clarinet, oboe, bassoon, trumpet, trombone, horn and timpani were going to be decorated on stage standing. And we were going to be allowed to veer off of the contractually defined dress code. We were going to be able to wear um, colored shirts. This is a big deal. We all, you know, we're supposed to wear tails every night, the highest level of male fashion. Mm. Women could wear dresses without sleeves. They could wear Mm. evening gowns. We could wear our hair down. I usually didn't wear my hair like this. It's a little distracting on a symphony stage, you know, so I would tie it back, you know, Mm. keep it high and tight as I could. But for this, I was going to wear it down. And Titus was like, yeah, I'm going to get a fade. I said, dude, of course you are. Like, that's what we do in these. Like, for all I knew, he could have shown up in some African garb, which he's been known to do. And that would have been totally appropriate for a performance such as this. But a couple weeks before, his 37-year-old sister goes in for a routine medical procedure and dies on the table. No way. The same thing. I couldn't believe it. And I was agonizing. Like, we, we hired a sub for his performance. The sub was like, what are we wearing? It's like, you know what? fuck it, we're just going to wear tails because you're coming in from out of town. Forget the idea to wear colors. We're going to keep it simple. And so I'm standing there with my hair down because I wanted to keep my word to Titus. And I couldn't think of anything other than the agony of the entire Underworld family, known personally to me. And the, the performance was ruined. I mean, it was fine, but it was ruined for me. And, you know, when you've been through hell like this, Clifton, you become part of a protected class in which when someone else joins that class... They expect you to know what they're feeling. And Titus, I mean, if there was anybody on that stage who could exercise empathy in the way that would be satisfactory to him, it was me. I didn't write on his Facebook because I'm not always down to publicly say thoughts and prayers. And in Mm. fact, when a thousand people give you thoughts and prayers, it starts to get a little annoying. It's like, that's all you got. You can't think any harder than the purest convention. Thoughts and prayers are with you and your family. Like, so what I did to Titus, I was like, man, I sent him a text. It's like, hey, Titus. I was looking forward to the fade for this concert. I'm looking forward to seeing it when you get back. I love you. I told him I loved him. And it was this comment that was later reported as insensitive because it was about his hair. Hmm. You know, I thought that we could bond over our mutual love of hair, but this is one of a laundry list of, of um, complaints that he had been filing away against me all along perfectly ready to deploy them during the dumpster fire that followed his audition debacle. So now we come to the point about what happened during his trial when he overthrew the orchestra. Do you want to interject? Cause I know there was a lot there and this, the next part of the story chronologically is intense and frustrating. So well, what do the you only, have? the only thing Go I ahead. would say is that um, it's, it's sort of a minor thing, but um, 
and kind of a digression, but it, do, it does have some meaning. The, the idea of hair, <laughs> because I've, I've, I've definitely had, um, there is a sensitivity to it because oftentimes, at least from a, a costume perspective, uh, you, it, it's changing now. It's, it's, it's much better now than it was, but you, you often are dealing with people who don't know how to deal with black hair or don't have any idea about, you know, just black hair culture, black hair styles, yada, yada, yada. But the, the broader uh, point is that this issue of hair and especially among black people, it's kinkiness. It's, it, you know, it's nappiness, if you will. Um, th- this idea that our, because it grows out of us and it's very unique to us, it's a very unique and prominent feature, uh, obviously our, our hair. So, it, so of course it becomes when you have a, a cynical and nihilistic uh, worldview um, <clears throat> such as those by Marx, uh, either Carl or Jonathan, whichever you prefer. Um, Same difference. It, 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 becomes, it becomes yet another sort of symbol of white supremacy and that people don't understand me. They don't even understand my hair. And I used to be one of the, those people that was like, man, these white people don't get, you know, they don't know what they're talking about, yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, that's just, that's a product of, again, a cynical worldview that, that, becomes a self-fulfilling pro- prophecy because it becomes yet another battleground for you to say like, these people don't understand me because they are white and I'm black and they think yada, yada, yada. And you know I mean? And people might have these sort of ignorant ideas about black hair or whatever. So what? That's their problem. And, and if, and if they want to know more about it, then it's not a, a mark against them. It's them trying to, you know, establish some sort of relationship or rapport with you, or they might be genuine, uh, genuinely curious. If they are making fun of you, then they're jerks. You don't need them in there. You don't need them in your life. But that's just a very minor point. So th- this idea about um, your comment about his hair, it, it's, it's not even about the, the hair. It, it's, it, it wasn't even about the hair in my, in my opinion, it was more about this broader idea of this person is so insensitive that he's talking about you know my hair which is exotic to him as a white man yada 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 white supremacy white supremacy white supremacy but but that was it but please continue your story that was my only digression yeah i appreciate that because it is a sensitive issue you know it he would portray the comment as thoughtless later but it was actually a very thoughtful comment because I had never grown my hair like this when my first wife was still alive. I was in the process of growing it when she died. And I was in that awkward stage. You know, if you're changing styles, it's like you got to fight for a month or two. Like I was in the middle of that when she died. So like hair and death were intertwined inside Mm -hmm. me. And so when I texted him, it was like, you know, we're talking about expressing ourselves, about having the freedom to do anything we want with our hair just for one week. You're doing it. I'm doing it. The kinky shit about, you know, all the tension that's supposed to happen here doesn't have to be this way. We can just love each other, man. We can just put our hair down and go out and fucking play. Like that's the beauty of doing this job is that we can leave all those difficult conversations off stage. We can come out and put our masks on perform and then when the red light goes off we go back to being homies like that's what the beauty of inclusion is Mm. is when you have people that can set that stuff aside and not be cynical and be trusting you can get some real beauty from that tension and we should be displaying that to the audience that's what that text was about it was about come on like let's let's mourn let's mourn that we couldn't do what we were going to be given the freedom to do this is about more than music this is about life and death and i know life and death and i know hair too So, 
you know, hair is big for me too. Maybe not the same way it would be to a man that looks like you, but you know, it's not like I don't get shouted down on the street by members of both genders um, about my hair curls. Like how the hell do you get it to do that? You know, it's not like some strangers haven't, you know, come up to me and put their hands in it and I'm flattered, but I'm like, you know, maybe not, maybe we shouldn't be doing this without asking. So it's like, if anybody was going to be able to understand him, it was me. So I saved him at the audition. I got them, I got him the trial week. I persuaded with logic and reason tools, which were valid back then, the rest of the committee to go in on principle and save him. Like, this is what we need to do. So the trial week arrives and there's an emergency meeting called in the maestro street, the maestro suite by John Carlo. He says, you know, what I want to do is instead of these two trial weeks, um, I want to vote after the first concert and I want all of you to vote. Yes. And I said, you know, others said, what, what are you talking about? Like, this is not what we agreed to. Like he needs two trial weeks. He's clearly in a hole. Like he needs time to dig himself out. And by the way, this first rehearsal that we just had was a mess. It was a weird piece by Kurt Weil, the violin concerto for our concert master soloist and like 11 wind players. Everyone was very exposed, very intimate piece of chamber music. And he was a mess. Titus was just acting different. Now, but you know, by, very by, nervous. by him being a mess, do you mean emotionally he was a mess? His and that that was reflected in his playing. I mean, you said it was. I mean, it's Kurt Vile, not not the easiest of, of no. composers, obviously. But uh, he so he was make, making mistakes. Was it or sort of the total package? Like what was going on what in your is, mind? He was very prepared. You know, this guy is a hard worker and dedicated, and he had received the necessary tutelage at numerous prestigious conservatories that had prepared him to do well. But his problem was intonation. This is his single biggest Achilles heel. Music is interesting in that you can play and listen simultaneously. It's not like verbal communication where you can't talk and listen simultaneously. Like if one is talking, the others are listening. But when you're not dealing with words, when you're dealing with vibrations, you have to cultivate the skill of listening to, to a vibration that is already there and joining the vibration on the same frequency. And Titus's assumption was that, you know, <laughs> the very concept of intonation is something invented by whites. And because I'm the principal oboist leading the wind section, it is your responsibility as anti-racists to follow me. If I'm out of tune, you must follow. And this was his attitude about playing. It was kind of baked into his style. And while it was, as the oboist, the leader, this is the quarterback of the wind section, okay? This guy comes in and though he's less experienced and less seasoned than us, he is in a certain position of artistic power over the rest of us. The guy is literally setting the tone at the beginning of each rehearsal with a tuning note, A440. This is done by the oboe. So we are following him all the time, but you know what he, where he was leading me was to places the music wasn't indicating we should be going. You know, like his interpretations, you asked what sense was he a mess? Every possible sense, socially, emotionally, artistically. And in a state of shock after the rehearsal, it was that, that was where, what we were feeling when we went into this meeting where the conductor was saying, everybody needs to vote. Yes. It's like, man, did you just hear that? You were standing right there. Now, how can you be telling me this? Are these issues that, that could have been, First of all, I mean, I mean, if explain like I'm five a little bit, the, the concept of, of intonation as briefly as you can. But also I'm, I'm wondering, again, are these issues that could have been ironed out with just more time, uh, preparation, discipline, maybe more collaboration among uh, among the various musicians? 
those exact questions that you are asking are the questions that we should have been asking in this meeting. Like, okay, we've got an interesting situation here. We've got a a guy who is struggling, who was victimized by you, the the conductor, in this audition. You know, he actually was, for once, a victim. It was terrible. And he was mad, understandably mad. And he thought it was part of a larger oppression agenda. But there was really no time to panic. He had two weeks. We were willing to support. And we were going to give him the two weeks and then deliberate and vote. Now, we had nine players on this committee. He needed a 5-4 decision to pass. And in this panicked conversation in the office, it was clear that not everybody was ready to just vote yes. You know, we were just like, I'm, I'm not convinced by what I've seen. The issues that have persisted in the past year about intonation and rhythm and um, self-awareness. You know, he probably would have been able to iron out those ideas by now, or I, those issues by now, excuse me. But he hasn't. He's continued to get more and more small over time, feeling oppressed, feeling like he's not succeeded, feeling like he's not being taken seriously, which he wasn't. He just simply was not in the league of everyone else. But he had gone through the audition process and obliterated everybody that on paper was better than him. So it was a very unusual situation that we were facing. But all of the demons were at the door knocking. There was threats of lawsuits, threats that the board of director was going to fire John Carlo if he didn't hire this black man, threats that donors were going to pull their money. And so the solution obviously was to John Carlo, just vote yes and just bury this thing forever. We'll never talk about it again. But I'm saying you are not going to take this vote away from us. We negotiated this vote in the last negotiation, something we had tried for years to have bestowed upon us, the power to vote. Because before that, Giancarlo would unilaterally decide on who to hire. We would prepare a pool of three finalists, and then Giancarlo would get to pick. He would ask us for our input, but it was not official. It was just advisory. He, he had the rubber stamp, and he did not like that either. He liked to be able to be tyrannically tyrannical, but it's also the question of how can you possibly uh, even presume to cover up a, a position you said is a pretty much a lifetime appointment um, for such a prominent position in your orchestra? How how can you cover that up? This was going to and change the it. complexion of the orchestra forever. This decision. So what well, we were saying in that meeting was literally in every sense we were saying you know what. We need more time. Like, I'm not going to agree to vote after the first concert. I'm going to vote after the fifth concert, like I agreed to do a year ago at the bargaining table. Like, this is the process. This process isn't racist. You are follow- not following the unracist process. You were the one who veered this thing off the tracks and created this dumpster fire, which is now consuming you. And, you know, as, as sorry as I felt for him that he made the mistakes, I mean, I was also kind of giddy at watching him burn. I mean, this is the man that helped carry my first wife's casket at the funeral. And he was asking me to get his back. And I said, you know what? You had my back when I needed it, but what you did was wrong, bro. Sorry, I'm not going to lie for you. No fucking way. And so (laughs) tension just grew and grew. More and more pressure came. Giancarlo started meeting with people individually instead of as a group so he could bully them. And when he tried to do that to me and the principal trumpet, I walked out saying, what happens if you make us vote early and he gets voted down? What are you going to do then? You know, he had not considered any of the scenarios 
that could have been created that would have backfired on him as he was imploding, fearing to lose his job. He was either going to get fired or have to hire a substandard player in his mind. So what he did was just hire him without our vote. Said, fuck you guys. I'm just hiring every, I'm just hiring Titus. You don't need to vote. And in doing so, they stamped Titus Underwood as the affirmative action candidate forever. They took away from him the opportunity to succeed on his own merits, which he had done in the audition behind a screen where none of these supposed biases were allowed to cloud our decision-making. And because of a freak accident, the maestro tried to take him out and nobody objected to it but me. So that left me as the only man in the room with moral authority. And I was just kept saying, no, you know, it's the word that no one knows how to say to this (laughs) stuff. But I just said, no. And people are like, you better be careful. You're going against the boss. I'm like, he can fire me if he wants. Like I've lost way worse than a job before y'all. You know, I followed my wife out in a casket while I carried my kids. You think losing this job is really going to hurt my feelings? You have no idea who you're dealing with. And that made me very intimidating to everyone because I couldn't be corrupted. I was just totally uncorruptible. And everyone was telling me in my ear, you're going to lose your job if you don't go along with this. And I just never cared. I said, I'll get another job. I'm a beast. I play in sessions. I got students. The Boston Symphony just called me to go play for two weeks at Tanglewood. Detroit Symphony, where I played a few years ago, they're just offering four weeks to me. You know, I'll, I'll land on my feet. I'm teaching at Vanderbilt. You know, I was, I ended up getting canceled there too. That's a story for another day. Mm. But, you know, I was fine to lose this job. And I would die on this hill for principle for Titus. Absolutely. And I was enraged when they stole from him the chance to succeed on merit. But the thing that I did not understand was that he didn't care. He didn't care about the meritocracy because to him, the whole system is so corrupt in the first place that what happened to him was just another day of being black. You know, just getting cheated, getting screwed. That's what it means to be black in America. That's your normal state of existence. It's Robin D'Angelo. It's not if racism. It's how is the racism manifest. It's that shopkeeper problem now, you know, where if the black man and the white man walk into your shop at the same time, you're racist if you help the white person first because you didn't see the black man, but you're racist if you help the black man first because he thinks he's about to steal everything from your store. Now, the shopkeeper problem is going to be applied to every request to stay after work and tune a chord. To every time I make a crescendo we didn't agree upon, I might be crescendoing over his sound and thus oppressing him. He was going to lead us down this hole and nobody saw the direction it was going but me. And I was just saying, please stop. Let's figure out a way to support him and be inclusive. And you know, the boxes on the other side of the fence where you can see the baseball game, that famous picture, like let's Mm -hmm. give everybody the box, enough boxes so they can stand and see the game. It's like, let's give them the boxes. If that's what y'all really want to do, you've created this dumpster fire. What is the, the way out of it? And their way was wrong. They took from him a chance to succeed on merit. And I railed against it so hard. I told him, I was like, look, man, I know I seem pissed, but it's not at you. It's not at the outcome. This is what I always wanted for you. I told you this. I told you I wanted you to win. I coached you. I brought you to my house to critique your playing and help get you ready. And there you were. And when everybody tried to take this away from you, I stood and took a bullet for you. And now they totally screwed you again. They screwed you at the audition. They screwed you now. So just so we're cool, you know, that I am doing this for principle and because you've been wronged, not because I don't like the outcome. 
and he didn't understand. Well, and here's how toxic this ideology is, because everything you just said uh, to a normal person, it sounds like you are you're standing up for principles. Uh, you are uh, you are acting out of integrity and for a a, a passion and a love. Uh, you're 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 looking at the long view of things. You want to uphold the integrity of not just the institution, but of the um, the discipline, craft, and the art that that you've dedicated your life to. Um, and but all your advocacy for this one individual will be turned by by let's say our socio political adversaries into um, into yet another, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Another arrow in the quiver, so to speak, of, well, look at this white man who is arrogant enough to believe that, that the fate of this particular oboe player lies in his hands and that, you know, it, it basically the, the, the savior complex, um, 100%. like, you know, James, you're just, you're just trying again, it's another form of racism. To think that you can save this black man or that this black man even needs saving in the first place. Um, another aspect uh, of, of this, and again, it's, it's such a, a toxic and a corrosive way of, of looking at, at the world. Because what you just said, um, you, don't need to, you don't need to improve you know, like you, you, there's no, you don't have to get better. You don't have to look at any of your weaknesses because um, anyone who, who calls you out on what your weaknesses are, they're obviously doing so because they are, they are racist. And part of it is this, is it's a, it's an, for people who aren't familiar with this way of looking at the world, which is ingrained in many black people from birth, this idea, this anti-assimilationism, assimilation is a bad word. And as far as it relates to the arts community, I mean, I've, en- I've encountered this myself uh, as a performer. You have this mechanism, this defense mechanism in your mind that says, is this person questioning me because they just, they are coming from their own sort of white European perspective of, you know, whether Eurocentric. it's- whether That's it's the word you got to use, Eurocentric, Eurocentric perspective. Yeah. But, but, you know, as they, as they, of course, put, put forth ideas and ideologies made famous by a bunch of uh, German and French people, but we're not going to go down <laughs> that, that rabbit hole talking about cultural appropriation. But, um, but, you know, whether it's talking about, you know, intonation or, um, I mean, I, I would have, uh, exchanges uh, in my conservatory program about, you know, people would get hung up on, you know, when we're learning uh, what's, what's the, the term called? I guess standard American speech. Um, and it's basically what we go through in, in order to learn um, how to handle plays with heightened language, as we call it. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about Shakespeare, you're talking about the plays of George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, um, or, you know, maybe more contemporary playwrights like Tom Stoppard, who write um, very linguistically complex um, texts that we're not really used to today. But there, there would be a, a discussions among black performers of, you know, they're just trying to get us to speak white. And this really goes against um, my sort of personal identity. And to me, I'm like, they're make, they're trying to make you more hireable, you dumbass, because you learning, look, me learning um, how to properly put forth, oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention does not uh, encroach on my ability to also, you know, I don't know, 
put on play a different character with it who has a whole different set of slang a whole different way of being maybe I, you know i'm auditioning for a rapper somebody you know what i mean you you can you you're, you're they're giving you more tools to work with they're not attacking your your personal identity and but the broader point is that it, it just it becomes everything becomes a battleground again and what it does is that it erodes your development as an artist because you have this defense up that says anytime a white person comes at me or tries to, you know, correct me in some way, there's, you know, there's a power differential there and, you know, and they don't, they don't understand me as a black person and my personal uh, way of, of expressing myself. And it's just, uh, there's another aspect of it too. Uh, a psychological aspect, which is it's difficult to fail in front of white people. Yeah. You you become very paranoid um, because any flaws that you do have or, or that you may have, and it may not be the first time that, that you've been told about these things, um, it becomes, you get sort of a weird neuroses about it because you're constantly thinking, you're you're on edge about, well, what will these other people think. And I, I remember my, my first year of grad school, <clears throat> a conservatory where, you know, I was obsessed with, well, what are the other black students going to think about the work that I'm doing right now? How will these white uh, students perceive me who don't understand me? The teachers don't get me. They, no one knows my struggle. No one knows my pain. And at the end of the day, no one really cared about that. They wanted to see me succeed. They wanted to see what was underneath um, all, all of this. And, um, you know, the, the, the broader point that I'm making is that this sort of worldview, um, it just really, really handicaps, uh, your ability to assess yourself as an artist. It, it, it robs you of responsibility of doing that, but also what happens, and this is sort of uh, centered around the story that you're talking about is that you, you, you end up having people in these positions, that really aren't qualified to be there. Let's just state it out flat. And the, the, the last thing that I would add is that what often happens is that the, the minorities who do succeed and wildly on merit are often ignored or they're erased. No one cares about these people. Um, one example I can think of off the top of my head is a woman named Audra McDonald. If no one knows who this woman is, you need to look her up right now. She's one of the most important actresses in the American theater, she's she's won more Tony Awards than any living actress. She's literally making history right now as she lives and breathes. She's one of our greatest living performers. And she broke out in the mid-90s uh, on Broadway and is a fixture ever since. She's one of our greatest. But this is, again, an industry which just in the past year has discovered that it's super, super racist. You know, but no one ever talks about how this this woman has defied the odds and um, and just has obliterated all these records and and is one of our greatest. You know, you uh, when I I was doing a a show on Broadway and they they did a piece in the Wall Street Journal about diversity on Broadway. Now, to my to my understanding, there was no other black man on Broadway doing farcical British comedy, full on accent, everything. No one else was doing the work that I was doing. Hamilton is a couple of blocks away and no one is doing what I'm what I'm doing. But no one ever stopped me and said, hey, you know, we think that what you're doing is, is really interesting and no one else is doing that. And, you know, talk about your training background, this, that and the fourth. 
you know, I, I never won any accolades for all the things that I was doing in my career. Anybody can look up my list of credits. It's very diverse. Um, but for this Wall Street piece about diversity on Broadway, none of the opinions of any of the Black performers were consulted. The white casting director was talked to. The white creators were talked to, were spoken to. Nobody talked to us. So when it's convenient for them, um, they will they will absolutely exclude any minorities who do not uh, fit the agenda. But then what happens is, is that the voices that get elevated are the ones who like you know, Mr. Underwood or others in the industry, in my industry, who, who will say, you know, they'll beat that drum, you know, loud day in, day out. This is, this is racist. The industry is racist. The only move they know. Well, you know, I, I mean, I've had people who with better careers than me, like there, there was a casting uh, director uh, named Tara Rubin uh, in New York city. You know, she's been around for a long time. She's, she's probably the second most prominent casting director in, in New York city right now. And she's known me for over a decade, a long time. When you get to a certain point, you have casting people who try to find jobs for you. If they, they try to find shows for you to be in. And this is a woman who, I mean, I've called her, you know, I've, for recommendations for agents. I've just like, I have a great relationship with her and she made the mistake a few months ago. And anybody can look at this, assuming the post is still up on Instagram, where she posted a picture of her and her staff. They're going back to in-person auditions. It was a celebratory uh, post after, you know, a, a year of COVID shutdowns. And all anyone focused on in the industry was that it was a bunch of a team of white people. And I saw performers that are more decorated than me that I know personally who were saying, I don't know if I can work with you ever again, Tara, or your office, if you don't hire more, uh, a more diverse staff, or if you don't hire uh, more minorities. I'm thinking to myself, bitch, they've been, I know she's been working on your behalf. She's definitely been working on my behalf, trying to find me. Like she's been one of the few champions in New York who actually knows all the things that I'm capable of. That's why she tries to help me out. And yet now she's a racist because she doesn't hire the kind of people that you prefer. And so, you know, I, I, I stood up to stood up for her publicly and I reached out to her privately um, just to let her know. But even still, like the, the, these people are so afraid. They're afraid of being even seen as racist. It, and it doesn't matter what they've done beforehand it's just it's that that fear of i don't want to be perceived as racist i want to be on the right side of history and all these people are barking at me and telling me that the system is racist um even if it really if it really isn't it's just unfair it's not necessarily racist it's, it's definitely unfair but um you know it, it just so the the, the we're, what we're talking around is this idea of these standards are, are going lower and lower and the, the art and the quality of it uh, are, are not the primary focuses of, uh, of what's going on. And I think what, what I'm seeing begin to happen is that now we have all these deck. Now, you know, we have what we want, even though it's still not enough for a lot of people, but there's a lot of people that are working right now in these jobs who are not white. And, I, I fear, and I'm seeing some of this happen already, is that audiences will begin to reflexively recoil and reject these performers because they're going to, on some kind of subterranean level, just presume that the person that they're looking at is not in that position because they're qualified to be there. They're, exactly. they're in that position. They're in that position to make the white liberals feel not they're not liberals. Let's 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 get that out there right now. These white quote unquote progressives to pat themselves on the back. They're trying to feel better about themselves. And um, that, I got that's... an example from the symphony world of exactly what you just said. Mm. 
So there's a man named Anthony McGill, a very decorated clarinetist, who is the principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. He is a proven candidate who, before he was in the New York Philharmonic, won many blind auditions for major orchestras. He started in the Cincinnati Symphony. He was then the principal clarinetist of the Metropolitan Opera, whose orchestra is possibly the best orchestra in the country. This is one of the most prestigious jobs. He was their principal for a long time, having won the audition blindly. He's a proven quantity. He teaches at every conceivable conservatory. He is a great player who won his job on merit, except he did not win his job in the New York Philharmonic from a blind audition. That orchestra had some auditions. They didn't find anybody they liked. They invited some players for guest weeks. This is something done by some of the most prestigious orchestras. You know, they just say, hey, I want to try that woman out. I want to try this guy out. And after Anthony came from across the street at the Met to play in the New York Phil, the music director brought him to the office and said, I want you to be my principal clarinetist. This is the system that was installed, or this is, excuse me, this is the system that auditions were created to destroy, where conductors could just hire anyone they wanted. Now, like you just said, you're going to have these um, players of color in prominent positions who may or may not have gotten there by merit, but now everyone will think under the new guidelines that Anthony McGill was given this job just because he's black. And they will not even believe their ears anymore when they hear his beautiful playing. They'll say, you know what? I'm sure he's just part of the agenda and they're going to go look for something else to, to spend their money on. I promise you it's happening already. It will be the end of the arts as we know them, Clifton. Well, and, and on top of that, you know, there's another aspect to this. Um, so quick story time for me. Uh, back in 2007 or so, uh, I was invited to go to, uh, it's, it's the Williamstown Theater Festival. It's up in the Berkshires. It's based on Williams College. So in, in the summer, you have all these uh, theater festivals that, that happen. They, they foster new work, but also because they're, they're very short gigs, uh, especially with a place like Williamstown, you get to get all these movie stars and celebrities to come in because it's a, it's a short commitment. And, you know, people who don't who aren't in the industry, they don't really understand. But when you're working on camera, it is not a performer's medium. That is the, the medium for directors, for editors. You know, as an actor, you have very, very little control. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, what, what happens on screen, but, you know, what shots are used, what footage is used, so on and so forth. There's so much out of your hands. But when you're on stage, that is the actor's medium. You you have full control over what you're doing. You and your scene partner, you're creating these moments and these scenes, uh, you know, out of thin air for a paying audience. And that's why people... Uh, who actually enjoy acting, they they return to the theater when they can. Uh, Uma Thurman did a play at Williamstown just a few years ago, uh, an Ibsen play. And you could just tell that, you know, she took on the role because she wanted to feel like an actual actor again. But so this is a, a place where people go. Um, it's a very, very prestigious place to be. And so what they, what Williamstown does is that they audition around the country at these like fancy conservatory programs, Juilliard, Yale School of Drama, NYU Grad Acting, which is where I went. Um, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco and others. And they will choose from all these uh, auditionees uh, a handful of uh, performers to come and fill in uh, smaller, um, more featured or supporting roles in their main stage shows. But then what you also, ooh, pardon me, what you also get to do is that you get to 
um, perform in these smaller one act plays um, over the course of the, 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 your time there. And so what that does for you is that even though you might not have like the biggest role in a main stage show, you do get the chance to sort of show your chops, network, meet people, meet, you know, important casting directors, all, all kinds of, I mean, it's, it's just a very great networking and business opportunity. And so this particular summer, I was down there and uh, we had the, the non-equity or non-union actors that were there. And then we're like, we're just a tier above all the, the poor little interns, which were basically like paying to be there. They were like cheap labor for the theater, but it's Williamstown. So everybody goes there. So the first day that we're there, uh, all the non-union actors, uh, you know, we're all about 24 of us. We were gathered into this big room and we each have to do one uh, monologue or audition piece for these four younger directors who are each going, who are each assisting, assistant directing on the larger main stage shows over the course of the season. So these, these four younger directors get to direct, each direct two one act plays over the course of the season. So we're holding auditions basically for the first round of plays. And I looked at them, and again, this is back when my mindset was still in this sort of left-wing orthodoxy, uh, um, and I saw they were all white, and I said, pause, let me put my cynicism aside and just do my work, and, you know, I had people coming up to me days afterward who weren't even in the room who were saying, like, man, we heard about the piece that you did, and, like, we're so happy to have you here, like, this is really great, and the callback, um, the callback lists were were were, were posted, and I wasn't on any of them. And it wouldn't have been that bad. I mean, it was already bad, but it wouldn't have been that bad if myself and the, um, and the other two Black men, who were the only other Black uh, uh, performers that were there among this group, had been included. Everybody else got called back. And it was pretty egregious because... You know, like one of the roles was uh, in one of these plays was for a gay male, ended up being cast with a straight white male, even though one of the other guys that didn't get called back is actually gay. Um, there were no similarities between us and the other people. And and the weird thing was, you know, all the actors saw what had happened and they were like, oh, my God, uh, I just I can't. And the directors, they were deeply, deeply embarrassed. And one of the weird things about it is that. Um, you know, and this is maybe this is why people like us are kind of different is because you you notice that pe- that this kind these kinds of things happen and then nobody says anything. You know, people just kind of let it slide. They don't say. But I, you know, spoke out and I was talking to, you know, various higher ups at the theater about it. You know, there was huge embarrassment. The directors were like, oh, my God, oh, my God. So the point of all of this is that when the second round of plays came around. Guess whose names were at the top of all of these callback lists? And it was it was me and the other two black guys. And I ended up getting a one of the leads in one of these smaller plays, you know, and it was a great role. But the whole thing was tainted because the entire time I'm thinking to myself, am I here because uh, I'm right for the role or am I here to make this white woman feel better about the mistake that she made? And. You know, it it really and it was weird because it was at a point where I had decided um, within myself not to use my race as a crutch. I very explicitly decided that summer that I said, you know what, I'm just I'm tired of this. I'm tired of using my race as a crutch um, for all the things that happen in my life. And oddly enough, uh, going back to what we were talking about, about the wall, the guard that's up. I remember the last night I was there, you know, we're on Williams College, we're all in dorms, you know, but, and uh, there was a huge, um, yeah, last night that we were there and people were just gathering around 
And, uh, you know, it was a lot of white people. And I, I joke all the time. It's like, look, you get a huge gathering of white people, you're going to get people who play guitar and a bonfire. It's just, it's just going to happen <laughs> at some point. It's going to happen. And so, you know, they were like, people were like, let's build a bonfire and like, and, you know, bond. And, and, you know, we'll all be wearing shirts boys. that look like the one I'm wearing now, too. Well, you know, like, the, yeah, you know, the white boys who played guitar were out there playing guitar. And I'm sitting there just fuming in my dorm room by myself being like, man, they don't understand me. You know, they, they don't embrace me as a black man. They don't, you know, da, 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 da. And then I said, hold on a second. I'm in here miserable by myself. I'm mad at them out there having a good time. And, you know, why, why am I so entitled and so arrogant to say that, that, that I say that they should understand every, every aspect about me. And finally I said, you know, I'm just going to go out there and, and have a good time. And they were so happy that, that I decided to join it. Like, Hey, Clifton, what's going on? And I realized in that moment, like, holy shit, it was me putting up these, these, uh, these blockades. It was me putting these guards up and I could learn about their culture. They could learn about, about mine. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know a lot of Bob Dylan. Uh, sorry. You know, that's just, that hasn't been a part of my, of my upbringing, but you know, we can still chill and, and hang out and it yep. doesn't have to be like that serious. And once I, but that whole summer was so interesting because I, I got to see um, you, you, you get to experience what it what it actually feels like to be a diversity hire. And yes. for someone who I mean, look, I spent uh, I'm one of those people conservatives make fun of. I went into a lot of debt and went to a very fancy school to learn how to do what I do. I built a career over over a decade. I mean, I never would have imagined I would have I would have had an agent and a manager, even a publicist. I'm getting shouted out in The New York Times. I'm I'm being recognized. Um, I'm getting award recognition for the work that I'm doing. You know, I'm in, in rooms with famous people, all, like with, with famous people all the time. And so to tell me that I need you to give me a helping hand after all that I've sacrificed, after all that I, you know, I, I could be married and, and have children right now. You know, the only, the only problem is that we both wanted to be actors. She wanted to be one in LA and I wanted to be one in New York. And it just, you know, yeah. we grew apart and, it, and it's very tragic. And I mean, I, I, I gave up things like that in my myopic focus on trying to be a, success, a successful actor. So how dare you come to me and tell me that you need, I'm only here because you need more inclusion and, and diversity. Like, bitch, I can do Shakespeare. I can do musical comedy. I can do uh, contemporary stuff. Um, I don't need your your help. But you seem to think that I do because you think, uh, because of your ideology, that I'm somehow beneath you in some way and need your help. And just one last thing. We do have to wrap up soon. But there was a, a, a an institution, I guess, since we're naming names, uh, it was the, the Chautauqua Theater Company up in New York, which is this weird little place that, that you go. Like, every summer they have this great... Uh, program where you have um, kids from all over the country. You have painters, sculptors, uh, opera singers, dancers. We all gather. It's a big, huge summer camp. And, um, you know, like some of the best from around the nation. And um, and it was funny. First, when I got there, A, there, there's not a whole lot of, uh, of uh, people who aren't white there. But almost every person I talked to would just point it out like, wow, 
not a lot of uh, black people here, are there? I'm like, yeah, thank you. I didn't notice that until you came up and fucking said it to me for the eighth time, asshole. Um, <laughs> but, um, but it was weird because I was invited up there. I had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. And then I ended up writing a solo show my final year of grad school. And they, you know, they said, you know, do you want to come in and do it here? And I was like, yeah, of course. I got the director who was the co-artistic director of the theater at the time to, to direct it and, and help me shape it. And it was just a positive experience all around. But then a fast forward to 2020 in the wake of George Floyd's death. And I get this long email from this institution, the person, the people that run it now who are saying, it's clear that we, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. It's clear we haven't done enough um, to be inclusive in this race. And I just sent them an email back saying like, I take my name off of everything associated with this institution. I don't want to be associated with it at all anymore because I have never felt excluded. I have never felt like I've been kept out by any of you people. I've had a wonderful time, but now you're, and I said specifically this, like, you know, I uh, don't want to be associated with an institution that does not hire on merit. And I feel like I was there on merit, but now I'm not so sure. And this, again, this is part of the conundrum of being a diversity. That's been taken from you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, I aspire to be someone like an Audrey McDonald or a James Earl Jones or or a Denzel Washington, people who were able to break through because they're really freaking good. Um, yeah. But now I don't think we even have a culture that, that that exists where that kind of that kind of undeniable gift, that undeniable ability, that 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 artistic um, power is being valued because the priorities, as you said before, uh, are different now. Well, I think what needs to happen in closing here, if I could just react to something that you just said is go for it. You've mentioned many times about these walls that are building up and, you know, I worked to try to demolish them as they were being built. But I found that sometimes when whatever these walls are made of, when you start to rail against it, they get stronger and taller, like, the rhetoric just feeds um, feeds in upon itself and brings everything around it into this black hole of artistic nothingness. But what you just described was a personal awakening, which is why I think the word woke is so funny. It implies that we are awakened from a state of slumber. But you actually did have an awakening where you said, you know what, <laughs> the issues I'm facing, it's my perspective that has something to do with it. It's not all me. It's not all white supremacy, but let's embark on the journey of discovery and say, you know what, let me reach across those aisles. Let's climb those walls. Let's see what's on the other side of these things. And it's not fun all the time. It's horrifying. If you look in the mirror and you say, damn, I'm in my thirties and I've been thinking a certain way forever. And it hasn't been serving anyone, not me, not the institution I work for not the people who are saying they're uh, oppressed, but, you know, I guess we're supposed to just sit on the sidelines and let the power players shape our future. And those are the people who are totally asleep and Mm. yet saying how woke we all need to become. And, you know, I'd rather write code than do art under those conditions. And that's what I do now. And I'm happier than I was when I left the symphony, but I will never be knocked out of the game forever. I still play. You know, you, you might not be in a spot as prestigious as you once were because you've taken a stand. Once again, you've made the sacrifice, whether it's going into debt or 
pursuing a profession which is not always easy or for which you're not going to necessarily be well remunerated every time. But you're a sacrificer. You know, you sacrifice your own future. You play, you bet on yourself. And that has allowed you to be in a state of awakeness. And, you know, I've made, I lost a lot of friends in the last year, but I've made new ones and I'm honored. I would call you my friend now, now that we've actually talked. Hope that's okay. This has been a real honor to be with you, Clifton. Thank you for having me. Oh man, well, I appreciate that, James. And uh, I will call you a friend as well. And hopefully we'll be able to to play together at some point. I think I think what, what I'm learning as well um, among these conversations it's been very gratifying because um, there are a lot of people who are very, very gifted, very dedicated, who see the same kinds of, of things that we are seeing. And I keep connecting with more and more of them all the time. And I think what's going to happen over time is that we're going to have enough people where we can begin to say, let's, um, let's build something new. Yes, me, new and worthwhile. And, you know, there are some people that are making headway um, and they are creating culture, as they say. But, um, you know, with all due respect to them, they don't have the expertise and the points of view or the aesthetic that that people like you and I have. And um, hopefully as, as time goes on, you know, via this podcast as well, you know, I, I, I'm, as I'm shaping it more and more with this sort of a, a sloppy rollout is, you know, if it can become a home and a gathering place, um, sort of a, a beacon for other disaffected, but highly, highly gifted and skilled artists to, to who understand what we're talking about and don't want to be a part of it. Um, don't want to be part of this sort of system anymore, because what we're, what we're both talking about is, or what we both, um, are talking around is maintaining the integrity of what we do because what, what because we take what we do seriously and we yes. think that it's important and you know th- this we're, we won't go down this rabbit hole but that's sort of been why I've I've spoken up about a lot of these COVID measures as well is because yes. what what you are doing is you are you are taking a hatchet to not just um, people's careers or people's lives or, you know, even the audience enjoyment, which is also being compromised by a lot of these measures, but you're, you're taking a hatchet to uh, art and, and a discipline and just a tradition that's thousands and thousands of year, years old. And it's an extension of the, the creative genius of humanity. You are, <laughs> you are stifling that this, this is, this is such a huge part of, of what we are and who we are. And part of my goal is to help people, the, the civilians, so to speak, understand that you, you know, we talk about culture war this and culture war that, but you can't ignore the art and the artists right now. And I feel like the artists really have made themselves sort of sort of obsolete uh, in a sense yeah. because they've been so meek about these kinds of things. But um, not are, anymore. But we, yes, thankfully, we are we are a force to be reckoned with. We are important. And um, more people need to recognize that. And the more that that people speak up and speak out against this thing, the more that people take a stand and find some backbone. Hopefully, we'll be able to to make some headway, and um, we can take down the uh, the Marxism of the world, so to speak. Yes.